Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, Tom Salemi here. Thanks for joining us on the second episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Keith Figlioli, how are you liking being a podcast host? I can't believe we're on episode two. I'm just excited. <laughs> you are. You are a legit. Now we have two episodes. So uh, this, this thing is. I feel so established. It is it's something <laughs> else. So uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, today's guest. You had a great rapport with uh, with Glenn Steele. Tell us a little bit about Glenn. Yeah, you know, I've known Dr. Glenn Steele for many years, and he really personifies sort of the exact type of guest that we want to try to showcase on this podcast, which is someone that has been in the industry for many years, someone who has been a constant innovator uh, and has seen this from many different angles, um, obviously from his time as a leading uh, doctor at an academic group here in Boston to running a health system like Geisinger and really thinking about being one of the first people on the front lines, thinking about value-based care, taking that up, spinning a company out of Geisinger uh, XG, and then now spending a lot of his time with Health uh, Transformation Alliance, HTA, from an employer view. So when you start thinking about someone who thinks about value-based care every single day, and I think you'll hear that within this interview, you know, Glenn is that. And, and, and underneath value-based care, VBC, is really this idea of how do we fundamentally transition the system from fee-for-service to value? Um, obviously, we have administration shifts that change that, like we're seeing right now between what happened with Obama and Trump. But I think what's enduring about Glenn and what I've always, you know, really come to, to love about him is his endless pursuit on this um, and finding different ways to do that. And I think, you know, obviously with the uprising and the news lately of J.P. Morgan, uh, Berkshire and Amazon, this plays right into this dialogue. So I think it's a very contemporary set of discussions to be heard. And I think a lot of people, some people have heard Glenn talk in the past. I've tried to dive into a couple of different angles that maybe haven't been unearthed, but I think people will be pretty excited about, uh, you know, round two here on our second episode. Yeah. And the one thing I, I walked away with is I really need to learn how to ski. I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. Game. Something that is not known about Glenn is he is a masterful skier. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've had the luxury of being able to ski with him and I uh, continue to be impressed every time I hit the slopes of him. That's great. Uh, and just a, a, a broadcasting note or a production note, uh, folks should know that this, uh, we actually, this was a, an interview that you'd conducted, uh, this wasn't at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. This was uh, over the phone and it was in September. So by the time folks will be getting this, I just want to let them know that uh, there's a, a bit of lag, but but the uh, the content and the conversation is uh, is evergreen, a lot of wisdom in there. So I'm sure people will enjoy it. Let's get into this uh, second episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Well, great. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, we have the incredible distinction to have an industry veteran and probably what I would consider one of the most innovative individuals um, over the last period of decades, Dr. Glenn Steele, with us. Uh, and so we're up for a, a candid discussion for him and I. And uh, I'll give a quick background on Dr. Steele, uh, which frankly doesn't need a background. <laughs> most folks know you out there. Um, but Dr. Glenn Steele served uh, as a chairman uh, today of G Steel Health Solutions, an independent operated venture launched uh, 
help healthcare organizations create value and improve quality. Uh, known very much for the former chairman of XG Health Solutions and, more importantly, the former president and chief executive officer of Geisinger Health System from 2001 to 2015. Uh, additionally, Dr. Steele serves as the vice chair of the Health Transformation Alliance. Uh, HTA is um, an organization of about 46 of America's most successful corporations with a common goal to improve outcomes, health outcomes, across about 7 million sponsored lives. A very interesting organization, which I'm, I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about. Uh, prior to Geisinger, Dr. Steele was the Dean of Biological Sciences Division, uh, the Pritzker School of Medicine, and Vice President of Medical Affairs at the University of Chicago, as well as a Richard Crane Professor in Department of Surgery. Prior to that, he was the William McDermott Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School, and President and Chief and Executive Officer of Deaconess Professional Practice Group, and Chairman of the Department of Surgery at New England Deaconess. Um, so we are beyond lucky to have him. Um, also, um, have known Glenn for a number of years. And so I will, if it's okay with you, Glenn, I will call you Glenn rather than Dr. Steele, but we can go back and forth depending on what you like. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm uh, delighted to be with you, uh, Keith. Call me Glenn. Terrific. Great. Well, I, you know, I, I planned on sort of thinking through as this is a, the first and we're experimenting a little bit, um, sort of opening each one of these, uh, Podcast with a pretty simple question out of the gate, you know, given your extensive background, Glenn, I, you know, the, the, what are sort of the first three words that kind of come to your mind when you think about your distinguished career and and maybe we'll play off one of those a little bit. Healthcare value. And specifically around value, because you've, you've been in and around that. And I, I always call that kind of an elusive word in healthcare. Um, When you stand back today, you know, what do you, what do you think we currently stand in this transition to value-based care? You've been in it for so long. You've been in it through multiple transitions of administrations, uh, including the current one. I mean, what's your overall view of where we stand in the marketplace in, in the transition to value-based care? Well, first of all, I think you've got to define value, and, and it's not it's it's classically thought of as as outcome uh, uh, divided by cost. Uh, and, and the cost, obviously, is most easily calculated by dollars spent. But uh, since I started out as a practicing uh, clinician and spent 24 years taking care of patients, uh, a huge amount of my definition of value is, um, is outcome for the patients over the amount of aggravation that those patients and their families actually have to endure. Um, and... Uh, uh, throughout my career, uh, my definition of, of, of value uh, is, is based on uh, achieving the highest possible and best possible outcome and decreasing the amount of aggravation for the patient and the patient's family. And, and believe it or not, quite often uh, that definition of value is quite uh, consistent with uh, decreasing costs uh, as well. So I, I think it's really important to put the patient's perspective at the top uh, and to define value based on, you know, what's important to them. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of a precursor to answering, you know, answering your question. So, you know, getting, getting to a specific answer to your question, Keith, uh, there, you know, there are two things that are, that are happening right now, and they're happening at different uh uh, different levels of intensity and at different paces in different markets. So first of all, it's very heterogeneous. 
But even in the markets that are still predominantly fee-for-service, uh, there's an incredible squeeze on the amount of uh, reimbursement uh, per unit of work. And then in some markets, um, you know, there is a real uh, transformation to something that is going to replace fee-for-service, whether it's shared risk or, you know, whether it's some form of, of a budgeting process, uh, which, you know, which puts uh, providers uh, into a you know, direct financial relationship with outcome for a population of patients. It used to be called capitation. Uh, now it's, you know, it's called lots of other things. Um you know, both of those, both of those reimbursement uh, modes are putting the squeeze uh, on uh, uh, on uh, revenue, and so kind of a unifying theme in in what I've been trying to do for the last couple of decades is to is to convince providers that uh, they've got to get more efficient uh, in how they care for patients fundamentally changing a lot of the behavior uh, in the interaction between providers and patients, regardless of whether they're in a predominantly fee-for-service market or whether they're in a population-based reimbursement market. And does that happen at an accelerated pace? So like if you think about what we went through with the Obama administration and CMMI and all the different things that went on there and some of the stuff that that you and I had a lot of back and forth with in in my previous role at Premier, um, you know, that that was being pushed real hard by regulations and new programs and innovation programs. And, you know, we've kind of de-accelerated out of that with the change of administration. Do you think the, the catalyst to sort of continue that movement, we, we have a saying around here that says, you know, value-based care is inevitable, but it's gradual. Do you think the acceleration will come from the demographic shift and the squeezing on the cost infrastructure, to your point, to really sort of have everybody realize that in a way? And it's not necessarily going to be coming from, you know, 10 or 15 net new programs from CMMI to drive people to, to, to change. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, and various people will realize it in, you know, at, at various tempos. I mean, you know, the hospital-centric CFOs, particularly in predominantly fee-for-service markets, are going to try to milk that cow as long as that cow lives. <laughs> and, 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 and the usual response, the usual response, particularly if you're, you know, the best brand uh, in, in, a, in a given market and it's predominantly fee-for-service, is to extract a premium for, you know, for that brand and to do more and to do more units of work, you know, as the reimbursement per unit gets squeezed. And I, I think that that has a finite lifespan. I really do. Uh, so I think that even for those, you know, those CFOs in hospital-centric markets that, you know, that, that are dominant in a fee-for-service reimbursement, I'm beginning to experience the fact that they're listening uh, to us when we're making a pitch uh, to fundamentally change uh, uh, the excess cost uh, in the equation, because you know they've got to drive the margin; otherwise, they you know they can't survive. And driving that margin simply by increasing units of work um, and and being able to extract a premium because of their brand. I, I, again, I think even those you know those, those CFOs uh, are starting to listen to us. And and how does that change take place? So I don't think many people know the early days story of when you arrived at Geisinger, you know, back in 2001. 
you know, what was the game plan going in there? I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a time in your career, at least the time we've talked and, and all that I know about you, that you ever weren't thinking about this kind of value quotient and more importantly, variation. Um, so what did that look like when you walked into Geisinger? What was your game plan going in? And then, and then just layering onto it, thinking about the social system and you had such a unique footprint there and you had such unique outcomes. What did it take to make that happen? Well, the, I think the fundamental structural advantage that we had was that, you know, we on, in the same fiduciary structure, we had both a, a payer, uh, i.e. our insurance company, and, and a provider. And we had great market share on both sides of the house, both the payer and the provider side. Um, and and um, ironically, <clears throat> both of those were, you know, were kind of pitched against each other, even internally, uh, when I arrived. And what I did... Uh, against a lot of advice, quite frankly. I mean, McKinsey and other, you know, very reputable consulting groups were going around uh, advising that most provider-owned payers, you know, be sold off. Uh, and we decided not not to do that. What we decided to do uh, was really con- contrarian at the time. Uh, and what, what, you know, what it amounted to was that the 50% of the business that we did on the provider side that was insured by our own insurance company we basically said, how can we construct a, uh, a, uh, a joint venture uh, that, that, would, that would target both the payer and the provider side of the house to decrease total cost of care? Uh, and, then, uh, and then how could we, uh, you know, how could we uh, actually show that there was better outcome uh, for patients over time? And then if we had a significant decrease total cost of care, that obviously would redound to the benefit of our insurance company. How, how could we do the internal transfer pricing to get some portion of that, uh, of that benefit uh, back, to the, back to the providers who actually changed how they cared for, for the patients, whether the patients needed acute care or whether they were you know, diabetics or patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or patients with coronary artery disease who had better outcome because of, of, of optimizing chronic, you know, chronic care management. So that was, you know, that was really the fundamental, uh, uh, the, the fundamental lever uh, that, that we used, putting payer and provider together to try to address the benefits of a mutual constituency, as opposed to having them both in conflict, even, you know, even though initially when I got there, they, you know, they were in the same fiduciary, they, you know, they hated each other, just like, just like regular providers hated uh, payers that, you know, that were not in their fiduciary. It was fascinating. Right. So is that, so, so is that the lesson, which is putting clinical and financial risk together? And thinking through the right structure, because as you know and can comment on, you know, we've seen so many flameouts on provider-sponsored health plans, uh, and then we've seen so much success stories on the other side of that equation. But it's really trying to get the equation correct, I assume. Yeah, but it's not just about financial alignment. Financial alignment is a predicate. You you got to have it, or else you know all of your altruistic uh, aspirations, uh, you know, you know, don't they don't last. But it's much more than financial alignment. It, it's actually having the leadership on the payer side and the leadership on the provider side figuring out what what the best outcome is uh, for you know for the members or the patients, and particularly 
the members and the patients who are the highest utilizers. I mean, that, that's where you start the process. And then once you agree mutually on the best outcome, uh, then you, you talk about what's the information that has to be shifted back and forth uh, on the part of, of the payer, obviously, you know, regarding the claims data and the analytics for the claims data and the predictive, uh, the predictive modeling and what have you. And on the provider side, to be able, once you've established what, what the optimal outcome should be, uh, to use your your health your healthcare uh, uh, provider information, uh, which which is obviously a lot more accessible now because of, of transactional EHRs and data warehousing and analytics on the provider side, to really monitor in real time or as close to real time as possible whether you're achieving your optimal uh, uh, your optimal changes in, in how care is given. So, I mean, it, it, and that, you know, putting the data together uh, is a cultural shift. Having, you know, having the leadership on the payer side and the provider side actually working together to come to an agreement on optimal best outcome, that's a big cultural shift. And only after that happens do you actually figure out how do we change the, the payment incentives or how do we do the internal transfer pricing to reward those uh, who deserve to be rewarded. Got it. And then, you know, on the leadership quotient side of the equation, another thing I think a lot of people probably don't know is you had some incredible people on your leadership team in those days at Geisinger, um, you know, whether it was Dr. Rick Gilfillan, Dr. Eric Beaver. Can you talk a little bit about some of the people you had as part of that team and how essential that was? And, and more importantly, um, you know, what are the critical components of that leadership and everyone? Because one of the things I used to see all the time uh, when I was a premier is you, you walk in all these different leadership structures and they're all sort of different compositions. You know, what what are sort of the critical elements of success? And and I'd put that into sort of where we sit today on at LRB Health, which is how does that fit into sort of what a few people are calling kind of the innovation imperative as part of this? Because part of that mindset you have to have to ensure that you get the type of outcomes that you experience while you're at Geisinger. First of all, we did have great leadership, and it was because we, you know, we built up a head of steam. We got a lot of good PR with some of our so-called proven care, which was re-engineering, uh, you know, a huge amount of uh, acute care, so that you know, so that we minimized individual unjustified variation, and uh, and and that allowed us, uh, you know, that allowed us uh, to actually be viewed over a period of time as the place to be if if you really wanted to try to. Uh, emancipate as much value as possible by getting rid of, you know, of, of um, unjustified or misdirected utilization. Um, I mean, you know, there's two, there's two critical issues about, about the bad value in healthcare. One is price per unit, uh, and the other is number of units. And, and we were attacking both price per unit, but we were really attacking unjustified utilization. Um, and, and, and showing that, you know, if you could minimize unjustified variation or if you could minimize um, overutilization or misutilization, you would end up with, with better health outcomes over the long term. And obviously, you would decrease total cost of care. And, you know, once, you know, once, that, once that journey, once that fantasy started to actually be transacted, even in little ways, uh, it became easy for me to recruit, and that's how I, you know, that's how I got people uh, to Geisinger, you know, like Gil Fellon, like Beaver, like, you know, about 25 or 30 other really important people. Um, 
And and that was just you know that was just the innovation part. The other the other thing that was really important is I and I've always been convinced that if you don't have a reasonable margin, if, if you're not building up your balance sheet, it becomes very very difficult to systematically take chances because if you're systematically committed to innovation, you're going to fail 15 to 20 percent of the time. And if you don't have the operating margin, if you don't have the, the balance sheet, if you don't have the governance credibility to allow that kind of failure, you're not really innovating. So, you know, that was, you know, that was part of, part of how we managed that. And that's, you know, that's in many, many markets, that's very difficult to, uh, uh, to scale uh, because in many, many markets, as you know, uh, getting an operating margin that's significantly above zero has been very tough. Right. And, and is that the rush? I mean, your mindset, the rush, and we hear a lot about this a lot and talked about it for years, the rush to scale then, because people know, you know, unless you're at that scale level, you cannot really truly be not only the brand in the market, but really the innovator in the market. I think so. I, I actually, I, I believe that's, I think that's the case. And, you know, a lot of scaling is, is based on just, you know, classic attack on, on redundant FTEs and what have you. But I, I think, you know, I think what we were trying to do with our scaling was to see if our attack on the 30 to 35 to 40 percent of cost that doesn't bring benefit to either the people we cared for or the people we insured uh, could, you know, could be generalized to other markets and particularly with you know, with fiduciary structures and with demographies that were fundamentally different than what we experienced in Central and Northeast PA. And before before I switch subjects um, onto HTA, you know, how much of that success back then was, you know, in your mind, you talk about data a lot and obviously the, the taking sort of more of the provider and the payer information together and thinking through that. How much do you think the technology stack, the technology work that you did back then was sort of attributable to some of that success and, and, you know, I'll leave it at that, if you will. Oh, I think it was huge. You know, if we, if I hadn't been able to, you know, to try to lobby my own leaders and my own fiduciary uh, to do the things that allow uh, data exchange, uh, particularly, you know, particularly trying to uh, housebreak uh, the transactional EHR. We, we were monogamous with Epic for almost 13 of my 15 years at, at Geisinger. And we spent a lot of time uh, modifying Epic so that we could do uh, what I, you know, what I've talked about at 35,000 feet down to the level of individual practitioners, understanding where they were on the best practice demands for our various care pathways. That was a big deal. And we could not have done that without, you know, without the, the technology stack. Absolutely. Interesting. And so before I get to HT, I, I, I don't want to skip over XG because this is a little bit of a loaded question because you and I have talked a little bit offline on this subject. But, you know, how did it go from running a health system to being a, in essence, a true entrepreneur at an upstart like XG and, and trying to figure that out in a, in a changing administration environment? Uh, you know, my, uh, you know, the, the anecdote that I, when I was, when I left Geisinger, we were at about 6 billion revenue and we had just gone over 30,000 FTEs and 
you know, when I would walk in the room, I could say really ludicrous things and people would have to pretend they were paying attention and they, you know, had to pretend they would go away and transact it. And, you know, when we started XG, which was a for-profit spinoff from Geisinger with two owners, Geisinger being a majority owner and, and a wonderful private equity group um, being our other owner, you know, I, I was, you know, I was building up, you know, a $15 million revenue. And when I'd walk in the room, uh, when I was trying to pitch one or another of our products, you know, it was usually some young intern or some young resident that I had to convince uh, as the first step of, you know, trying to get a client. And uh, it was, you know, it was pretty eye opening. I mean, you know, it was it was interesting. I enjoyed it. And it was very uh, it, was, it was very robust, um, and, uh, and my learning curve was a new learning curve, but it was different, fascinating. Yeah, it's fun, right? I was I was to joke when, <laughs> when, <laughs> I've been doing that for twenty years before. Uh, I always joke when you first got there, like we talked, I'd be like, "Oh, you're you're starting to see the side that I've lived for a while." Um, well, I wasn't, I wasn't betting my house. I wasn't betting my mortgage <laughs> on it or what have you, because I've done pretty well. So it wasn't, it probably wasn't quite the same as, uh, you know, as most entrepreneurs. That's it right. was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very vital. I enjoyed it. Hey, everyone, Tom here. Excuse this interruption. I want to let you know that we've got a number of great interviews posted up on YouTube. These are from interviews I did in the back room during DHIS with uh, a lot of the, the leaders we had in the room at the conference. So go to YouTube, search for DHIS Healthogy. You'll find a, uh, a number of Q&As with uh, great people who are on stage and in the room. I asked them uh, a lot of, I thought, interesting questions about what advice they received, what their, uh, their companies are up to, what their solutions are, and what they're hoping to achieve. So they were very forthcoming. I think you'll enjoy the conversations. Please go to YouTube, search for DHIS Healthogy, and you'll find the DHIS Q&A playlist. Now let's get back into this conversation. Now moving on to HTA, because I want to get into this a little bit, because it's a very um, topical discussion right now. You know, first, I think a, a quick description for people that are listening around what HTA is, because I think a lot of people jumped at this, oh, JP Morgan, Berkshire, and all this other stuff. And I think people quickly didn't understand that there was a pretty important organization already put in place that's been thinking about these types of problems, but maybe an overview on that and, and really where the focus is and more importantly, where you think the heads of employers are, the actual purchasers are, you know, in its current form. Well, you know, we're at 46 self-insured uh, companies, very large companies. Um, I'm talking, F, you know, uh, I'm talking Amex, I'm talking Verizon, I'm talking IBM, I'm talking FedEx, I'm talking, you know, a number that are in, that are actually in the, the, uh, uh, the healthcare universe uh, as well. Biogen is in, HCA is in, Kaiser Permanente is in, uh, Sharp Healthcare is in, um, and, and Walgreens is, you know, we have, we have anchor, we have anchor purchasers who are members of HTA. It's all self-insured, all the large self-insured companies that are, um, that are helping us uh, in a series of beta test markets. Um, as of one one eighteen, uh, we've been in Chicago, um, in uh, Dallas Fort Worth, uh, in the Greater Phoenix market, uh, and we've essentially established for our health solution uh, approach uh, an HTA um, 
group of providers that we think have not only the commitment, but the capability of giving us value-based care. Uh, and uh, uh, we also have a pharma uh, set of solutions uh, uh, where we've essentially gone from four uh, uh, PBMs to two PBMs. And part of the, you know, part of the, uh, of the specifications for the winners was essentially to work with us to, um, uh, to develop an HTA formulary. And, um, you know, we've got, you know, we, we've got a commitment on the part of this cooperative and we can't, you know, we can't write contracts directly uh, with providers because um, we're a cooperative and that would, that would run us up against ERISA rules and regs. So we're writing contracts with our specifications through a number of regional and national TPAs. And, you know, on the one hand, that's kind of cumbersome. Uh, it could be viewed as a disadvantage. But on the other hand, uh, it gives us an advantage because those TPAs are largely what the benefits managers of our 46 companies are already dealing with. So if we can, you know, if we can minimize the complexity of the administrative tasks of the benefits managers of these companies and and still specify a series of healthcare solutions that will give us uh, two outcomes um, you know, we think we can we can develop we can develop significant uh, value over a short period of time, and the two outcomes that we're targeting is number one, price per unit, uh, and that's the usual kind of quid pro quo between the amount of volume that we can shift to our chosen HTA providers and discounted fee for service, and the other outcome, quite frankly, is an attack on misutilization and overutilization. And we're starting by focusing on hip replacement, knee replacement, low back pain treatment, and treatment of type 2 diabetes. And those are the, the four most prevalent uh, uh, health services uh, with cost variation in our particular HTA demography. So that's kind of a short summary of where we are and what we're trying to do. So, Glenn, when you think about HTA and, and, and some of the background you just gave us, you know, how does that relate to the, you know, the current news about uh, Amazon, J.P. Morgan and Berkshire and their effort? And, and, and also, you know, how does that relate to HTA? But then also, where do you think a tool and team will ultimately focus at the tail end of that? I'm sure you're aware that, um, that J.P. Morgan is a member of HTA. Um, and they're highly participative, uh, and they're, in fact, I think, uh, probably our largest member with 250,000 um, FTEs and almost 500,000 sponsored lives. In addition, there are a number of Berkshire Hathaway companies that are uh, a member. Of, uh, I think uh, um, certainly, uh, certainly in Dallas, one of our most important uh, anchor purchasers uh, is um, uh, is a Berkshire Hathaway company. So we're you know we're delighted that uh, that a tool is 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 uh, is running running this project. Uh, once he gets his feet on the ground, uh, we're going to see if what they develop could actually be applied through our HTA distribution channel. Uh, and you know we we see what what the three folks are doing uh, as synergistic uh, with what we're trying to do, but different. Um, and, and by the time, you know, by the time we get to one we'll be in over, 
12 markets with our uh, health services buying beta tests. Um, and so again, we're, you know, we're delighted with what they're doing and we think that probably some of their product will, will help us achieve our goals and will be synergistic. Interesting. And I'm not so sure they know quite yet, but do you have any inkling of where you think they'll start? Well, you know, this is pure guess on my part, Keith, but I, I believe that Amazon has got a pretty good idea of some products that will disintermediate uh, a number of, of folks in the supply chain. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think Amazon probably has a pretty good idea of how to reach out directly to healthcare consumers and will come up with products that will, uh, you know, that will be much more direct to consumers. And quite frankly, um, if, if they develop uh, an interesting set of products, uh, we would, you know, we would, we would love to talk to them about being a distribution channel. Uh, no question about it. So that's, that's kind of the way I put it, you know, you know, put it in right now as a, as a supposition. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch. I actually saw a headline today that they're just now starting to hire additional employees actually here in Boston. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, so just to get towards the the closing side of this and couldn't appreciate appreciate you any more of taking the time because this has been really enlightening. And, and I think some of these early stories, a lot of people know the high level in terms of the success you had at Geisinger others, but I'm not so sure they've seen some of the details and understood that. So it's great. But you know what you, you've seen a lot of, I always call these shocks to the system or shocks to the industry, you know, and you've been a part of those over the last couple of decades. I mean, what do you believe is going to be the next catalyst or shock wave for the industry? I, I almost feel like we're in a little bit of a lull right now. Um, but what, what's your, what's your thought on what's kind of coming next? Well, I think the public payer, uh, is expanding. I mean, nobody would have predicted that Medicare Advantage would continue to be growing the way it has. Um, and, and Medicaid, regardless of you know, all the political shifts in Washington, D.C., Medicaid is just huge. And it's going to become, you know, it's, it's going to continue to grow, I believe. Um, and, you know, the public payer is obviously not going to be able to reimburse uh, uh, unless, you know, unless there's a fundamental change in the outlook that we have as far as taxation is concerned. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't, you know, I don't see that changing uh, in our, in our country. I don't, I don't see us becoming a Northern European taxation uh, kind of uh, platform. So, you know, what it, what it means is as the public payer expands and as the young and the old demand more and more, there's going to be a real squeeze on reimbursement, a real squeeze. And there's two ways of handling that. Number one, you know, you, you, you hurt people by, um, by creating a difficulty in them getting care. And I don't think that will be politically acceptable in this country. Or you fundamentally re-engineer how care is given. And you try to extract as much of that 35 to 40% of crap uh, or a cost that doesn't help people, and, and you redeploy it. Now, how you redeploy that depends an awful lot on our political situation. So I, I believe that that is the single most important imperative uh, to, uh, you know, to change. Um, and then the second most important is what HTA represents and what, you know, Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan represents, and that is the, the self-insured companies not wanting to be the last remaining engine uh, you know, of, 
of, of high margin for hospital-centric providers. <laughs> so I think I think those things are convergent, and I don't I don't believe there's going to be an epiphany. And if there is an epiphany, I think you know there's lots of bad stuff that usually happens. But I think there'll continue to be a huge pressure for incremental change. And the and the you know it's interesting too. On top of all that, at the macro level, you know the insolvency of of CMS doesn't seem to be getting much limelight as of late, but it's still lingering. It's still lingering out there. Absolutely. It will. And, and, you know, again, I, I, you know, I think this is agnostic to your, to your political views, but, you know, if you do the math, if you do the math on a lot of, uh, of the, the kind of easy ideas about single payer or, you know, expanding Medicare, it's, it's pretty overwhelming in terms of what would have to happen to, you know, our, our tax, our tax system. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, it's crazy, but we, so, so we could go on for, uh, and you and I've talked for many times, I mean, for hours here and I don't, I don't want to be cognizant of our time. And, and so I have one last question, which is, you know, a little off topic, but you know, what's the, what's the one thing that most people in the industry don't know about you? Something that's not out there because I know you've been out, you know, a lot in the public press and and been around for a long time. So I'm curious. If there's something that that most people don't know about you. It'd be great to finish on that. I could be quirky and and just mention how good a skier I am, despite my age. Uh, that's where I was going to go because I've seen you. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly where I was going to go. I was going to say. But I tell you, that, but but the other thing, the the serious answer, the serious answer is that I believe that in order to have sustainable change. Uh, in healthcare, uh, you also have to have a sustainable business model. Right. And and what we did, what we did at Geisinger, which which was a huge amount of change, was predicated on not only a sustainable business model but an improving business model. And I and I think that you know the people who are well-meaning but very altruistic without you know without understanding that you have to have a sustainable business model will create something that just won't survive. Yeah, I think that's a great ending point, and, I, and it's something that you know resonated with me when you were on the premier board and, and mentioned that a lot. And um, you know, it's something that I've thought about often in terms of you saying that. So I really appreciate that point, and more importantly, appreciate your time and um, and friendship and. Glenn, this has been great. And like I said, we probably could spend the next couple of hours pontificating on a bunch of stuff, including skiing. But with that, <laughs> let's sign off. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the time today. Oh, listen, my pleasure, Keith. All right. Take care. Well, that is a wrap. Keith Figlioli, I think you're getting the hang of this. Great job on the podcast. Thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us on Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. If you do us a few favors, please, you can subscribe to the podcast. Tell your colleagues and friends about the podcast. You can give us a ranking on iTunes or Stitch or whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. That helps others find the podcast. Finally, and most directly, uh, reach out to me. I am on Twitter, at MedTechTom. You can also find Keith Figlioli there. He is at Keith Figlioli. That's spelled F-I-G-L-I-O-L-I. And uh, tweet to us, DM us. It'd be great to hear what you think about the podcast. And uh, if you have any future suggestions or comments, uh, please share them. You can also reach me via email. My email is tom at healthagy.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Healthagy is the producer of the Healthcare is Hard podcast, the Breaking Health podcast, and of course, DHIS, the best digital healthcare conference that there is. Tune in next time, folks. We'll have another podcast for you in January. It's going to be a great one. And of course, happy holidays from everyone here at Healthogy and LRV. 
It's, uh, it's great to bring you these stories, and we look forward to doing so in the new year.